This is the Vanguard Podcast. I'm Gavin. And I'm Zach. And we're so pleased to welcome to the show today, Maximilian Alvarez, Editor-in-Chief at The Real News Network and the host of the Working People Podcast. How's it going today, Maximilian? It's going all right, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we're excited to chat today. Yeah, thanks so much for your time, Maximilian. And, and, and as I uh, mentioned, you're the, the host of the Working People Podcast, which um, Zach and I are both huge fans of over here at The Vanguard. We think uh, the kind of work you're doing over there is great. And I just wanted to ask you um, how you decided to get started with that and, and what inspired you to just start a platform uh, where you essentially just talk to and platform the voices of real uh, working people. Yeah, I mean, um, I appreciate that. I'm really glad that you guys are liking the show. You know, as you as you well know, right, you know, uh, we don't we don't do this for the money. <laughs> that's, that's for sure. Um, so, you know, like it's there's always like a labor of labor of love aspect to it and you know i knew that kind of going in and i've i feel very very fortunate that you know i I stumbled upon the type of show that you know i can never love too much right you know and and talking to the kind of people who i can never love too much so i guess like that that's that would be like one of my main pieces of advice for anyone who's thinking of starting a show is um make sure make sure you can love it right? make sure that it, you know that love can withstand all of the kind of pitfalls and agonies and, and injustices of building a media product in the 20th century and you know it, it was very much um it grew out of a place of love as well um you know i've told this story on a couple of other shows you know kind of about the the origin story of of working people um you know my my folks they, they both come from, you know, family backgrounds, um, you know, steeped in poverty, steeped in, in struggle. Uh, you know, my dad was born in Tijuana um, with uh, three uh, siblings and their father abandoned them. And uh, my grandmother, Grandma Josefina, passed away when my dad was just six years old. So, you know, then they, they kind of went through a really, really trying process where they were essentially split up and brought over to the United States. Um, kind of, they found families to live with that through the church. And um, this is actually, you know, I, I talk about this because it's part of like the the kind of original catalog, right? Like the very first episode I ever did of Working People was with my dad, Jesus Alvarez. And we actually did a follow-up to that uh, in season two where, you know, because of the success of that first episode, I think to this day, it's still the most listened to episode, um, which I'm, I'm very proud of because I love my dad and I love that uh, he, you know, took that brave step to be my guinea pig um, when I wanted to do that first episode. Um, but, you know, that episode had actually brought me and my dad closer together. And I think it had brought our family a little closer together. And I'll get back to that in a second, um, why that was. But in the second season, um, you know, knowing that I had interviewed my dad about his life and his kind of path to where he is now, um, you know, I thought it would be cool one year when I went home for, for the holidays, I brought my recorder with me because we always go to my Tietera's house. And I knew that all my tios were going to be there. And so after everyone had a couple beers, a lot of tacos and stuff like that after the Lakers uh, were on. And things were kind of dying down a little bit. I just like set up the recorder and asked if like they would want to kind of do a follow up and have the 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 siblings kind of fill in their sides of the story. 
And I think that episode is called Mi Familia, um, if anyone wants to go back and listen to that. And, you know, there was it was a really great episode. It's one of my absolute favorites for obvious reasons. But there was a there was a moment in that episode when, you know, my my dad and, and my Theos were talking about when my grandma Josefina died. And unprompted, like, you know, and unexpected, they all just kind of started crying. Um, and I think we all did for like a good, you know, 30 seconds. Um, and it was a very, I think, you know, beautiful, powerful and cathartic moment for us. And, um, you know, on the ride home, uh, I was talking to my dad about it. And he said, you know, I think he's like, that's the first time all four of us have sat down and talked about our mom dying. And I was like, you guys have been in each other's lives for like over 60 years. And this is the first time you've ever talked about that together. And I was, I was like, you know, I didn't know that, but I was, I was, you know, really proud and honored that like something that seemed so insignificant uh, as recording a podcast episode ended up being so significant for, for us and our family. And it just, you know, I go into that story because it just constantly reminds me of the power of giving people a chance to tell their stories, right? It just reminds me of how seldom we give ourselves or one another that gift um, because it is a gift, right? And and there's a lot of, you know, one of the pillars of working people is that there's there's real political power in doing that, right? There There is a real essential political component to offering that gift to one another, to listening to one another, to reminding ourselves and each other that, you know, our lives and our stories matter. Um, and that we're not the kind of insignificant, uh, soulless beings that capitalism tells us every day that we are. Yeah, I right? think that's not so Yeah, yeah, I think that's so Go important. And, and the best part, uh, one of the highlights of, of your podcast is because we are so in, very intentionally by the capitalist media model that we have, uh, the perspective and the experiences of working people and the pain and the love and the range of emotions that are felt by, you know, the majority of Americans who are working people are completely erased uh, from the media that we're exposing ourselves to. And if you look at it, you know, this, uh, you know, it was never great. There was never great working class representation in media, but over the past couple of decades, it's, it's become even worse and worse. And there's almost no representation of, you know, working class experience and working class life. And one of the things that I think is so, um, you know, powerful about your show and your platform is that, you know, you don't need the capitalist media system to, you know, create those stories for us. We can share our own real stories and they're more powerful than they would be if they, you know, had been, you know, kind of come up and concocted by, you know, uh, some studio executive. And I I'm wondering how we can take that very real energy that, that uh, the emotion, that connection that you feel to people when you hear them open up and share their 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 truthful ex truthful experiences. How do we turn that into political power? Like you were you were talking about. It seems like uh, with the Democratic Party, uh, you know, it's almost been moving more towards the PMC erasing the working class entirely. Um, so how do we resist that? And how do we take this energy that's so clearly present and and um, move forward with it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's a great question. I think it's the essential question, right? And I think it's one of those things that, in one sense, like, um, it's kind of like you need to let it go where it wants to, right? Because I think the, the way that I would start answering that question is that, as I was saying, there is a power there. There is a, a kinetic force. It's just never been truly unleashed in this country, 
And so I think that as much as we should and can um, kind of think about how we could channel that power into what ends, you know, it's also essential to kind of recognize that, um, you know, as the, the, the power of the literal power of the people, the power of people realizing that they are human and that they deserve better than this, right? That we all deserve better than this. Um, you know, when human beings in, you know, when a community of human beings like recognizes that fact, they're capable of anything. And we've seen this throughout, uh, throughout history. And I think that you're absolutely right that the mainstream media has been um, a really vital um, kind of organ of capitalist hegemony that um, essentially absorbs that energy and converts it into nothing, right? Or converts it into commercialism, conver converts it into something that allows people to feel like they are maybe expressing that power without allowing that power to actually express itself, you know, like in any sort of uh, way that would challenge the existing power structure. And so I guess that's my, that's my kind of preface to, to my real answer to that question is that we don't know, you know, what could be unleashed if we actually did work harder together collectively. It has to be a collective project to de-alienate ourselves and our fellow workers um, and to revivify those types of human connections that remind us how much we need one another and how much we all depend on one another and, and the world that we share, how much we are all kind of responsible for stewarding that world, um, you know, forward. And, you know, I think that, you know, the, you know, one podcast is obviously not going to like change the world, but it's more about like the tradition that I see myself kind of participating in, right? This is something that organizers do every day, right? Is you, you listen, right? Any, any organizer will tell you that the most important job an organizer will do is listen to people. Um, you know, I, I had, a, I just did a, an episode with a social worker in the Bronx, Michelle Manco is a really brilliant woman. And she said that social workers need to ask what people want and stop asking what the system wants of them. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. And I think that, you know, that's kind of where my answer would lie, right? Is like, you know, you see those tweets from Bernie Sanders and other people being like, what would you do if your debt was erased? Right. And I think that those types of questions are really essential because they, they invite people to think about uh, how their humanity would express itself if we weren't so shackled by uh, the wage relations, right? By the, the kind of commodity fetishism of living in this fucking capital, capitalist hellscape, right? If we were actually allowed to live um, and be the sorts of beings that, that we were meant to, um, you know, if you, once you start seeing that as not only like a possible, like, you know, an, a thought exercise, but actually a real possibility, um, you know, that I think is kind of what drives real political change. That's what drives revolutions, right? And so, you know, where I think this type of communication, this grassroots, um, you know, non-commodified type of communication, by which I mean, you know, communication that doesn't have an ask uh, attached to it, right? Communication for communication's sake, for, for connection's sake, right? Really just, uh, you know, affirming for one another that your story is enough. You are enough. You deserve to be heard, right? Like your humanity deserves to be celebrated because it is your humanity, 
right? Not, not for any other reason, right? I mean, doing that work and convincing ourselves and one another of that type of stuff, right, is, is vital to building the type of solidarity that we're going to need to take on the massive and nefarious forces that we are combating, right? I mean, that's been kind of the, the million dollar question for the left, uh, well, forever, but in this country, you know, especially. Um, and, you know, like, how do you get, how do you have a country where um, wealth disparity is so incredible, power is so concentrated in the hands of so few, and so many are so routinely fucked over so often, um, how do you get those people to really kind of work together to overthrow the former, right? And, and kind of build the sort of world that they deserve. You know, we see this every day. We see it through the media. We see it through social media. We see all the different ways that people are divided, right? That people are divided from each other and even alienated from themselves. People tell themselves they don't deserve a better life. Um, they punish themselves for not being able to pay for their rent, when you know the the very foundation of that rent system is unjust right i mean like this is exactly why i wanted to give my dad that opportunity to talk in the first episode because for years after we lost our house in the great recession i could see how much he was punishing himself he was self-flagellating within himself within his brain within his soul for years and it was killing him like he was he was not the man that i knew growing up and, you know, the moment that he started talking to like the people he was driving in Uber and realizing that he wasn't alone, the moment that, you know, he started talking to me and really kind of feeling like his his experiences were valid and that it wasn't all his fault, the more willing he was to embrace other people in that position, to really think about himself as part of a collective, not just this kind of atomized agent who had failed in a system that set him up to fail. Right? I think there, that type of solidarity building is necessary for whatever political project we develop. Um, and it's, it's the glue that's going to hold the whole thing together. It's what's going to keep people attached to one another um, and attached to the struggle when everything else is going to be trying to push us apart. Yeah, I think that what you're um, talking about uh, as far as solidarity in the digital age goes, I think that um, that thinking is very innovative and very necessary, especially moving forward. And you mentioned Bernie Sanders, and um, who, of course, I think was trying to one of the people trying to kind of create a more equitable world that's not so, um, you know, capitalistic in nature, or at least um, not as many victims of the system of inequality, which has been so perpetuated. And, and that, of course, brings to mind um, the way the media treated Bernie Sanders. You know, of course, there was the infamous Bernie blackout that was uh, talked about widely in um, lefty circles, although obviously not in the mainstream media, hence the hence the title or name. Um, and, and we talked to a lot of candidates here at the Vanguard um, that are, you know, funded through grassroots means, small dollar donations. They're not reliant on um, the corporate machine or the lobbyist industries, which so many um, politicians in DC are. And usually they say that pretty much, if not the biggest, um, but one of the biggest obstacles that they consistently face is the mainstream media, you know, whether it's uh, because they're not being covered equitably or they're not being covered fairly, or they're the victim of smear campaigns. We've seen this over and over again. And um, concurrently to this, we see on the right wing, um, this very scary phenomenon where lots of um, you know, right wingers are kind of leaving any and all uh, sense of reality. You know, they're leaving um, even Fox News because that's too um, based in reality for them. It's not affirming 
their ridiculous notions and these conspiracy theories that have been sowed by, um, you know, the likes of Sidney Powell and uh, Rudy Giuliani about um, the election and these uh, claims of fraud, which haven't really come to fruition. So, uh, you know, it's this interesting place where on the left, you don't want to, you don't ever want to fall into that kind of a thing where you just lose touch with reality and, you know, stop paying attention to any, um, you know, quote unquote, authoritative sources, any mainstream media outlets, because a lot of, you know, good reporting is subsidized by, you know, the New York Times or CNN, or at least it was at one point. Um, and regardless of their, you know, opinion editorials and that kind of stuff, uh, you know, journalism has to be funded um, through somewhere. And, uh, you know, as much as uh, we love the Patreon and Substack model, you know, I think that we would agree that the funding has to come for, you know, some uh, big budget journalism from somewhere. And, and I just wanted to get your perspective on um, what the left should do as a movement, or uh, I guess at least on an individual level, individual level as a, you know, consumer of news and media, how we can kind of consciously combat this supremacy of the corporate mainstream media while also supporting great journalism and, and making sure that, uh, you know, that tradition doesn't die off. That's a great question. Tell you what, if you figure it out, you let me know. <laughs> I mean, uh, no, I, th I think uh, like this is exactly where our heads need to be at. And, yeah. and um, you know, I guess there, there, there are a couple of things that I would say, because I think the more people we have thinking about this question, the better. Right. And and I don't just say that out of a self-interested, nerdy place because my like degrees were in like media studies and, and history, <laughs> media history yeah. and stuff. So like in one sense, I need that to be true in order to justify all that fucking time that I spent <laughs> you know, reading these books. Um, but another like, you know, reading about the history of the changing media landscape in, in the U.S. and in Mexico, uh, even in parts of Europe. Right. It was all very enlightening to me because I see media and politics as fundamentally intertwined in any historical epoch. Right. I mean, Again, if, if politics is, um, you know, fundamentally a team sport, if it is fundamentally a mass sport, right, then like you need the actual media, you know, going all the way back to the Latin roots, like media being those the, the things that connect us, the things that connect that which is separated, right? Media are the kind of relations and tendrils that bind us to one another, that communicate information to one another, Right. We ourselves are being mediums right now, um, you know, bringing our audiences in conversation with one another. And we're communicating through technology that, you know, conveys the thoughts in our head through the language that's coming out of our mouths, yada, yada, yada. Media is everywhere. Right. My my whole dissertation was premised on the notion that media are the connective tissue of being that we cannot be who we are without being connected to our other people and to the world that we're a part of. And media, um, that, that we are who we are, always in conversation with the world. And media are the facilitators of that conversation, right? That's, that's what I spent like 400 fucking pages writing. Like, that's basically it, right? So, like, in, in, in order to kind of make that less abstract, right, in every historical epoch, right, the question of how we communicate our political program, how we reach people, how we get them on our side, how we gain intel about what struggles they're facing, um, what the power structures of their worlds like are, where they come from, where they're vulnerable, right? All of that, and not just that, but also how we 
you know, move through time and space, how we preserve traditions, whether in songs or oral traditions or literature, history, right? That is the past communicating to us in ways that are politically necessary. Otherwise, we're always going to be reinventing the wheel, right? We are always part of an ongoing political struggle that stretches back to the beginning of time, right? And so, you know, that includes methods of transportation, right? It includes methods of communication and preservation of memory and, you know, all that good stuff. It kind of reminds so, me a, a, a little bit about the work that, uh, you know, uh, and maybe if I'm, I'm off base a little bit here, but there's this book, Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman, came out in the 80s. And he kind of went on this idea about like when the media, the medium actually that you're using to convey these political idea changes. So he was commenting on it with, you know, changing largely from print to uh, television that the way that people were receiving these ideas is now changed because the communication method is different. And so uh, what sticks and what people, you know, uh, are able to, you know, receive at a, a greater level changes. Uh, do you think that's going to be evidenced again in the changes that we see with the internet? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> so I think, um, let's see, because I think, yeah, bringing up Neil Postman is great. And I'm trying to make sure that I can like tie that back to what I was just saying, because I think they're fundamentally connected um, because, you know, essentially what what I was getting at, right, with that whole spiel on media, right, a more elemental understanding of media, um, you know, is that what we call the mainstream media, right, are these outsized pillars of that kind of media ecology, to use Neil Postman's term, that we're all a part of, right? So like a lot of the connections that could be made between us, Right. A lot of the things that could be informing us in our politics and how we relate to one another are channeled through mainstream media. Right. And that infrastructure has been set up over centuries, which is what Neil Postman talks about. I actually kind of uh, cite that same book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, in a piece that I wrote for the Baffler a couple of years ago called the, the Real World Trump Edition. But I tried to basically explain how to understand how we got to Trump, you need to go all the way back to the telegraph, right? Because, and I'll, I'll, I apologize for listeners because this is going to be a very uh, spark notes version of what I talk about there, right? But Postman identifies the, the telegraph as a kind of um, tectonic shift in media history, right? Because until that point, you know, you think about the function of the free press, you think about the function of local news, it wasn't called that at the time, but that's what it was. News was fundamentally local because it was a medium that was established in a local community that was limited by the bounds of physics and by the technology of the day, right? So if you were going to be reporting on or commenting on, you know, relevant information, if you were going to make your newspaper in, you know, the colonies or whatever the fuck survive, right? You needed information that people in your immediate sphere could recognize and in fact could use, right? You were handing information that you were conveying information through this medium that, you know, again, like it was part of their being. It allowed them to live in a certain way. It allowed them to live more effectively in their worlds and to know what was going on with agriculture, with business, with culture, with politics, and to then kind of act in the world as a more kind of informed citizen, right? You know, with the parentheses that like that was white landowning males at the time. With the telegraph and with the train system, we broke those kinds of barriers. Um, you know, we, we were now suddenly able to convey 
information through time and space uh, at a hitherto unprecedented pace, right? And so what that meant for newspapers and the news industry was that the information that made it onto their pages was not just kind of limited to what the people making those newspapers could source in their local communities. It was coming through the telegraph, right? And so now you had an ever enlarging, like the increasing amount of information that has come through those wires has never gotten like smaller. It has only gotten bigger since then, right? And so the amount of information that keeps coming in forces an evolution in the news industry where suddenly people who have newspapers or, you know, little independent publications, right? You know, and if they had access to, you know, those, those telegraph communicators, because at a time, a lot of those were really monopolized by certain companies, it was only in the 20th century that they started to become a bit more democratically accessible in the U.S. and abroad. But anyway, as it becomes more accessible, as more papers and more outlets get access to that information that's coming from beyond their local spheres, and I say this as an editor now, you have to then make decisions about what to put on the finite amount of paper for this week's issue, right? And so then what influences that calculus? What influences the decisions you're making about what to keep and what to cut and how to present it? That is where the capitalist kind of like underpinnings of the American media system really start to show themselves, right? That is where the penny press really kind of emerged as a dominant cultural force in the late 19th century and early 20th century, right? Because if you sell papers at a lower cost, if you're not supplementing the cost of your papers through advertisements, then what you're, sell what you're really banking on is selling a shit ton of copies. And how you do that is by selling what sells, right? Blood, right? You know, like the, the, if it bleeds, it leads, right? I mean, so you get, you know, a new system that gets hooked uh, and addicted to the shallow and the sensational, right? And, and in many ways, we haven't outgrown that, right? In many ways, we're kind of in that ecosphere, that ecosystem on hyperdrive, right? Because now we are consuming more information than ever uh, at a quicker pace than ever. And we're consuming it in like smaller and smaller bits through tweets, through headlines, through whatever, like whatever we hear in podcasts and manage to retain. This is what Neil Postman calls the problem of information glut, right? And, and I think that the reason I go into that in detail, and I apologize, you guys hit a, hit a nerve here. The reason I think it's so important to understand why information glut is a concept worth understanding is because Postman, more than anyone else at the time, saw that, that had political ramifications because he said that if you are if you are a consumer of media right and every day you are getting more and more information from the world beyond your local sphere from news from outside of the country news from other states news now today about the environment about wars in other lands about this world that we seem to be like only watching through 3d glasses while it's on fire the thing that he points out is that that throws off the information action ratio. He says, when you have a glut of information, you have a, a poverty of action because you can't, you can't do much with all that information except consume it and move on to the next you know, thing because the information is always coming and we just keep getting fatter and fatter on these tidbits of information. But then we lose the very purpose of what a free press was meant to be. Right. It's not just to keep us informed about what's going on. 
like I said earlier, it's about giving us information that we can act on that can make us better democratic actors and actors and stewards of democracy itself. We don't have that now. We are we are have been forced into the position and mainstream media has accelerated this um, for over a century. It has put us in the position of constant the constant position of consumers, not as democratic engaged actors in the world that we're a part of, but really just spectators to a world that is fed to us through these media. Sorry, I'll, I'll shut up for a second. <laughs> oh, that was yeah, a great answer. Thank you. Do you have something you wanted to follow up a sec? Oh, uh, no, you can go ahead, Gavin. Okay, well, yeah, as a next uh, kind of question and follow up to that, um, I, I was just wondering, because you mentioned that you yourself are an editor, obviously, at the, at the Real News. And um, one of the more, I guess, interesting episodes and something that I still feel, to be honest, slightly conflicted about uh, that happened recently was when um, Glenn Greenwald left The Intercept over, uh, you know, editorial issues. And, and he didn't like the fact that they were imposing a little bit uh, more editorial oversight on his um, work than he was used to. And uh, I just want to get your opinion on, on all that as an editor yourself and, and um, what you think about the, you know, Substack or Patreon model of journalism that I mentioned earlier. Um, do you think it has the potential to kind of liberate journalists from um, the increasingly corporate um, you know, grip that they have on editorial boards and, um, you know, in the high echelons of newspapers like the New York Times? Or um, do you think uh, it's kind of sacrificing some of what uh, makes journalism a collaborative effort in the first place? Yes. <laughs> so I, think, I think a little bit of all of it, honestly. Um, you know, I think that, let's see, where where to start, right? I mean, I guess I would say to start right if if people haven't they should they should at least check out for references sake um you know john nichols and rob mcchesney's book the life and death of american journalism um i think it gives a good sketch of the changes in the industry over the past i mean i think it was written like 10 12 years ago so the first the first part of the 21st century and it gives a lot of good context uh for the 20th century as well um, but, you know, I think that they they kind of draw what is essentially the same conclusion that I would draw, which is that even when it was at its most, uh, you know, street like uh, efficient, right, the advertising revenue based model that mainstream media had pegged itself to that the news industry had staked its very existence on for like two centuries. Right. You know, was never a good model. Right. It was never a model that first monopoly model. Yeah. Yeah. It's a terrible model. I mean, because it essentially staked what is a vital democratic function, a function that is needed for a democracy to work. If you believe that in a democracy, it is the people who, you know, who rule. Right. Obviously, we're not in that situation now, but even if you go back to like, you know, the quote unquote founding fathers, like this is what they really wanted in the free press, right, was was something that, you know, could provide, you know, like an external source of information and accountability um, that would give, um, you know, democratic actors the ability to hold their government accountable, to make decisions, yada, 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 right? The advertising revenue model that we kind of hooked that to essentially made a vital democratic function um, beholden to and dependent upon uh, 
capitalism, like making like, you know, um, people being able to make money off of it. Right. And the results have kind of spoken for themselves. Right. When people are pissed off that we have so many goddamn advertisements in this country. Well, there you go. That's that's what happens when you build uh, a news industry upon this. When people get mad that, you know, mainstream media just keep interviewing like corporate lobbyists or like high paid think tank assholes, people with an economic agenda to push. That's what happens when this is the model that you base your media on, right? When you, when you base an entire news system on things like privileged access, right? And, and competition between um, firms, as it were, newspapers or outposts, not a kind of collaborative information ecosystem that benefits uh, the collective health of the demos, that's what you end up with, right? Is the kind of like hodgepodge, like Frankenstein's monster of a news system that we have in this country. And I think that the fact that, um, you know, the people, as it were, are so disempowered in American democracy is not unrelated to that, right? I think it, uh, it doesn't all depend on the fact that our news system is fucked, but, you know, I think that plays a very essential role in it. And I think that Part of, um, you know, where I'm where I'm leading to is that, you know, to get out of this, we have to kind of approach media in that sort of collaborative way. We have to invest in media and think about media and, and engage with media, not just consume it uh, with um, a non-capitalist or an anti-capitalist kind of perspective. Um, I think that that is the only way that we can inevitably fulfill the original democratic promise of the free press. Right. But like to to go back to your question, Gavin, you know, uh, I mentioned Robin John's book um, about the life and death of American journalism. Right. They reached the kind of conclusion that I would reach, which is that not only is the kind of corporate model, the advertising revenue based model, like a bankrupt model now, literally. Um, but, you know, it has kind of left us in a position where, you know, in the 21st century, we are producing like you know, what we're producing, even though there's a lot of content, it still doesn't hold a candle to kind of like the heyday of, you know, uh, journalism, as it were in like original investigative journalism or anything like that. That's been dying for a long time. What we've instead got is a lot of commentary and a lot of repackaging of the same information that gets shared around, you know, and picked apart, picked clean. Uh, everyone's referencing the same AP report, yada, yada, yada. So it's really just kind of putting as much chum out there to your respective audiences um, to make uh, enough money to cover your overhead. Really, that's kind of the situation that we're in. And, you know, what what Nichols and McChesney kind of say is that there's there's really only one way out of this, which is like New Deal level investment in kind of like public subsidies for, you know, all journalism. And they say, like, you can't get bogged down in the ideological debate, but like, something like what you know the uk has or whatever but like there's a massive amount of funding for journalism that just has never really existed in the united states i think that that makes a lot of sense i don't think it's ever going to happen so then the question becomes you know when we already start with this massive gap in kind of the funding structure for the news industry in this country um can crowdsourced projects through Patreon and Substack and what have you fill that gap? Or can nonprofits like The Real News fill that gap? Um, I think like, again, it's, it's a yes and no question because a lot of it depends on, on how things are changing, right? I think that, 
you know, even my own media career, uh, we're just looking like in the last pot in the past five years, right? I've kind of already seen a lot of the the kind of changes that have happened um, from the kind of you know Trump's presidency and and the the kind of primaries before that were a massive boon to a very to a dying news industry, right? And, and that was across the board, right? The mainstream media got these big bumps in ratings and subscriptions, but also the left, right? I mean, I ended up kind of really starting my media career as a columnist for The Baffler uh, at a time when The Baffler, Jacobin, and Current Affairs probably wouldn't have survived if, if Trump wasn't elected. Um, or if they did, they you know their path to where they are now would have been a lot more difficult. And so I'm constantly Bernie, wrestling with the fact. Do you um, think that Bernie's uh, like rise had anything to do with that too? Because it seems like he- I do. Uh, you know, excited the left and like, uh, you know, obviously the Jacobin, I think, gained a lot of, um, you know, readers from like the increased um, membership from the DSA, which, uh, you know, could be also attributed to Bernie's campaign. But that's a really interesting um, observation. And I think that that's totally correct that Trump kind of did save a lot of the, um, you know, these media companies um, as far as their ratings goes. And it'll, it'll be interesting to see how they try to fill that void uh, when he's now that he's gone or that he's exiting. At least. Oh, he's not gone. And I think that's the big takeaway from all this is the fact that Donald Trump is and not to completely derail the conversation, but I, I think for certain he's going to continue to tease this 2024 run, and, you know, at least until 2023 when he'll make up his mind. But he, he just loves being the center of attention too much. And, you know, I think that's exactly how they will continue to uh, keep their ratings high. MSNBC is going to continue, you know, to wave the, the you know, uh, alarm, or ring the alarm bell. You know, the fascists might get back in here. Donald Trump is going to do anything. You can't criticize Joe Biden. You can't criticize Kamala Harris. You're just going to get Donald Trump back in here. Is that what you want? Um, you know, whereas Fox News, you know, they're in a bit of a pickle because they've been kind of outrighted by one American news network. But I have a feeling that they're going to continue to kind of, you know, do the whole Joe Biden's a socialist thing and the alarmist, you know, is ju it's just going to continue. Yeah, I mean, they're going they're going to be residues and echoes of 2016 in the 2020s, for sure, in, in the vein that you just described. But there's also there also are going to be, I think, a lot of changes. Right. And we're already seeing it. Right. We've already, you know, from from the moment that, that Biden was declared the victory, the victor. Right. We have this kind of concerted push to get back to normal. Right. To to re-embrace the center. Right. And to, uh, you know, now we're just hearing all these kind of same empty platitudes about national unity and yada, yada, yada. And what that is going to mean for us on the left and for media makers in general, right, is that, um, in fact, we should expect the pendulum to swing in the opposite way that it did in 2016. And the left needs to think very seriously about that because, you know, we have we have been we've grown. The left is still very paltry in the political kind of landscape today, but our presence has grown with the help of Bernie Sanders and AOC and, and the squad and stuff like that. But, you know, in this kind of new era of the, the Biden presidency, there is going to kind of be a, a very forceful kind of push from the media on down to, like I said, get back to normal. And in one sense, it's very understandable, right? Because if you think about like the audiences, right? if you think about the people that, it to, I guess, tied all the way back to the original question that y'all asked me, right, about building solidarity and communicating with one another and connecting with one another. If we're going to do that, we have to understand that a lot of people out there are very justified in wanting to not have to think about politics every day. Yeah. Right. It has been an exhausting four years. 
right? And and it's not over, right? I mean, the pandemic, you know, I mean, and all the kind of issues that you raised earlier, right, about the struggles that working people are facing today. It's a lot. It's a lot. And, and we can't to browbeat people into thinking about something they don't want to think about. That doesn't mean we abandon the mission. It just means we have to, again, open our ears more and listen and, and find the soft points where people's political will and political consciousness is still alive and where we can we can activate that without triggering their political fatigue. Right. I think that that is where things like conversation and, you know, with working people may be able to kind of fit into the left's overarching media strategy moving forward. I think that it also means that when we talk about politics, we need to be able to bring it down to eye level and to communicate the struggle through the things that people experience in their daily lives and not just kind of the power brokers in D.C. or state legislatures or stuff like that, right? There, there are a lot of ways that we have to kind of adjust to the waters that we're swimming in, right? And the people that we're trying to reach. And I think that where independent media is really poised to do that, right, is that, you know, we're not taking the same model that mainstream media was, which is like, we command your attention through our monopolies on cable packages and cable and the channels, the select number of channels that are there, uh, the select number of radio stations that are available in a certain area, those dynamics have been changing for a long time. Now, everything is kind of communicated and distributed through this er medium of the internet. That gives us an advantage, right? But it also means that the field is very cluttered. It means that, you know, we have to, um, you know, we're not just like talking down at people, right? From on high with our, like, you know, stranglehold on these cable packages and what have you. Right. You know, instead, we are able to reach people at a more kind of grassroots level and appeal to them based on what what they are telling us their needs are. Right. And, and you know, what we can kind of piece together by working together. Right. By connecting with with other journalistic outposts, you know, not just in the U.S., but internationally um, podcasts in the U.S. In, internationally, um, we need to constantly be trying to think of this as a collective project that cannot just kind of survive in today's media ecosystem, but that can eventually kind of overtake, you know, this dying kind of infrastructure of corporate media. And the the only way we're going to do that is together. Because to your point, Gavin, like, I think we can make, um, you know, the, the field has changed enough that crowdsource projects via Substack or Patreon are actually more viable now than they were even a couple of years ago, right? Um, but we're not gonna ever kind of build up a Patreon that gives us as robust of an infrastructure as the New York Times did 20 years ago. That's just not gonna happen. And so the way that we do that, right, is, is through a kind of collaborative international network of media and political kind of organizations and personalities, something that is responsive to the people that we are trying to serve and and the people we are trying to activate um, into kind of like the democratic struggle for a better world. And, you know, we the sad fact is that we live in a kind of media ecosystem that is constantly trying to get us to think like capitalists, to get us to think like competitors, to get us to lord over our own personal fiefdoms of followers 
and Patreon subscribers and to always see it as a zero-sum game. It's not that. And we need to stop thinking about it that way. We need to have one another on our shows. We need to think differently about how we package our products and who has access to them and how we get that to people, right? You know, how it's not just marketing, right? But it's actually collaborating in a way that gets people content that they may actually want and need, but they, because of today's algorithms, because of a million other factors, they may just not see it. So we need, if we are commanding a small number of, you know, viewers or listeners in the way that the big media companies used to command a mass audience, if we have smaller pieces of that, then we start putting them together, right? Gradual, bit by bit, right? Until like that catalyzes a process where they are passing it on, where they are starting their own media projects, where they are informing our projects. I, that's the only way I see a way out of this. I don't think there's going to be a dominant medium in the rest of the 20th century. I think the internet has kind of absorbed all other mediums into itself, text, radio, TV. And now it's kind of made that kind of accessible through all of the different kind of smartphones and computers that we have. And so I think that the more that we kind of get on this train and start approaching media this way now, instead of kind of waiting for some silver bullet that will like give us access to the mass audience that no longer exists, I think we'll have a real shot. Yeah, totally. And, and I think that's, uh, you know, something that's so important too, to, uh, you know, talk about how a lot of times, especially leftist media can be um, very just depressing and overwhelming to, you know, an average normal working person who doesn't necessarily uh, feel like they have it in their, uh, you know, mental capacity to, you know, sit through two hours of the latest horror stories going around the world. And, and, and that's something, you know, we try to do here at the Vanguard is exactly that, you know, kind of repackaging some of these um, ideas or, uh, you know, informational things into uh, a form where people actually will want to, you know, enjoy it and watch it and share it. And, and I think uh, you've mentioned AOC too. I think that she's, um, you know, kind of been a pioneer as far as making uh, leftism, you know, kind of cool, you know, the squad going on Twitch streams and playing among us, stuff like that, that, you know, does, it is a kind of a pathway into these real substantive conversations for maybe just your random uh, millennial or Gen, Gen Z um, person out there who may may not uh, have an outlet for their frustrations with um, the world that may not realize that there's a political or activist um, path for them to take where they can express some of the ways that they're feeling. So I think that's a really good point that you've made. And uh, yeah, just um, thanks so much for you know sharing your perspective on that. Yeah, Maximilian, we want to be respectful of your time. We really appreciate uh, you coming to chat with us. Uh, I guess as just one final parting note, where can people go to one support you and check out the uh, work you do on different platforms? Yeah, thanks guys. I really appreciate you having me on. Um, really appreciate the discussion. You can tell, like, just by my long-winded response to your questions, like this is this is something that I think about a lot and I'm really, really excited when when other people kind of are participating in that conversation and getting me involved in that conversation. Cause again, I think we we need to strategize uh, in this arena as much as we need to in kind of other areas of organizing. Approaching media with an organizing mindset is not a bad thing. Media making is not organizing, but I think if you approach it with the same type of principles, you'll you'll be surprised where you end up. And I think you'll be happy with where you end up. And I guess the last thing that I would say about the stakes here is that um, 
the stakes of, of approaching this collaboratively and not competitively is that, you know, if we're thinking competitively, even the biggest left podcasts, even Jacobin, all of us pale in comparison to what the right has. Like we are getting creamed uh, and it's not even close. Yeah, right? Ted Cruz's and, podcast is so fucking popular. It's horrifying. Yep. So, you know, if we want to keep uh, sniping at each other on Twitter, you know, and, and, you know, being proud of ourselves for kind of having a certain number of listeners while Ted Cruz is whooping all of our asses, while Ben Shapiro is whooping all of our asses, then great, you know, then, then good luck. Right. So anyway, um, I, I don't say that to be disheartening. I say it to, to, to hopefully galvanize people to, to get going now and to stop thinking like capitalists about this. But um, yeah, we're, folks can find me, um, you know, I'm on, I'm on Twitter uh, at Maximil underscore ALV, I believe. Uh, Working People is on iTunes, Spotify. Uh, we are partnered with In These Times magazine, a great magazine. So you can find us on there as well. Uh, check us out if you want to listen to yeah me interview workers. Uh, I promise I talk a lot less on those episodes. Um, but you know, on top of that, please go check out the real news and all the kind of great shows that we have on offer. All the great um, hosts and personalities that we have. I, I can't even begin to kind of list all of them. But I mean, seriously, like anything that you are interested in, if you were like even just left curious right? Or not left curious. I think there's a lot of stuff there for you, right? There's Eddie Conway, a massive towering figure on the left, former Black Panther here in Baltimore, who was a political prisoner, who now hosts a show called Rattling the Bars about prisons and prison abolition. Like, it's an incredible show that, you know, the left can really use. And, and I think that, um, you know, Eddie himself is a really brilliant towering figure. Like, that's just one of the shows that we have. We have Police Accountability Report, where Taya Graham and Stephen Janis kind of report on um, what the police are doing or when they, when in the, with the death of local journalism, we need programs like this to kind of shine a light on, you know, the corruption of, of the police around the country. Right. So there's, there's a lot of great stuff at the real news, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, check out our website, check out our YouTube channels. Um, yeah. And let's, let's keep building this thing together. Awesome. Absolutely. All that uh, information, all those links are in the description box below for anyone that's um, watching and I urge everyone that is watching to check out uh, exactly as you said Maximilian those shows they're great and I'm actually going to check out that uh, one that you mentioned um, I haven't I haven't um, listened yet but that sounds like an absolutely great show about the police reform and uh, rattling the bars I think you said it was called so there's rattling the bars which is about prisons and prison yeah. abolition um, police accountability All report right. which is about kind of reporting on the police and a lot of other great shows as well yeah definitely yeah. definitely check those out as well as a bunch of great interview collections. I know when I was, uh, you know, first exploring uh, YouTube, uh, you guys had some, some of my favorite interviews ever. I just have to plug that David Graeber interview uh, from a few years back. Rest in peace to David Graeber, one of the premier anthropological thinkers of our time, anarchist thinkers. Uh, so anyway, just to plug that for the one millionth time on our podcast, because I talk about it a lot. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Awesome. So much, thanks so much, guys.